Uh, Snowden leaked it in 2014. Mm. The JDF is the JDF um, influencing social communities. That's fantastic. That, I mean, again, that's on the that's on the darker, yeah. you know, white hat, black hat. That's yeah. that's up here. All right, we are recording today. I have on Nick Robinson. He's the former CMO of Quest Nutrition. And he is now the CEO of Reality Check, an immersive uh, video entertainment company. So, Nick, thank you for coming on. Of course. Great to be here. Definitely. I'm excited. Uh, so, my first question for you is, uh, I know you've been up to a lot. You founded Reality Check or co-founded it. So, what is the most exciting thing you're working on right now and why is that? Yeah. So, at Reality Check, our, our mission here is to bring immersive entertainment to the mainstream audience. And so I think today most people think of immersive entertainment as virtual reality and augmented reality. And those are indeed our, our focuses, um, you know, for the next five, 10 years. But when you think even broader, um, we're in the midst of a sea change of what it's going to mean to be entertained, uh, both at home and at locations. Mm -hmm. And there is a window of opportunity that exists right now to create the next Disney, to create the next Fox. Um, and, you know, every hundred years, you have this massive turnover of, of what people consume. And that's enabled by technology. But, you know, technology is just sort of one component of the overall mixture. Um, and so right now you see that most people that are, are in VR are people kind of like me, right? They're, they're geeks, they're enthusiasts, they're the early adopters. And mm -hmm. so at Reality Check, what we're doing is creating content to bring in that next wave, the wave of the mainstream. Uh, so really focusing on them and, you know, what the mainstream entertainment of the future is going to be and ushering that in both in North America and across the world. Hmm. So it sounds like this ushering in this new era of entertainment is something you've thought a lot about. Is this, you made it clear it's something that's probably going to take over a lot of the media we now use. Is this something you've been thinking about? you know, incubating since back, I know you said you worked for Michael Eisner back, uh, right after you got out of Disney, your first job in LA. Is this something you've been incubating since then and wanting to do your whole life? How did you come across this idea and want to turn it into a company? Yeah. I mean, it really is a accumulation of everything that I've ever been passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so you, if you kind of distill who I am, you know, from a professional sense, it's combining story technology and community. Uh, and I've been doing that since high school. So I started a website for a forum for main car enthusiasts. If you want to be like the most niche you could possibly go, yeah. people modifying their cars in the state of Maine. Um, but that taught me about building communities and at the same time creating content around those communities. And this was in the early 2000s. Um, and then, you know, working with Michael Eisner, creating some of the first video content for platforms like MySpace. Um, that was sort of that, that next step. And then at Quest, it was, let's combine all of that uh, into a marketing vehicle to sell physical goods. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, this really is something that's been building, building, building since the yeah, I was a kid. Wow. Okay. The whole community building. Uh, I, I want to get into some of that because I, there's a ton of questions I have about how you did that at Quest. But before I do, what, what will that look like for reality check? Uh, like when I read the description to me, I just thought of virtual reality, some type of virtual reality entertainment, but can you describe exactly what you envision the products being and how you envision building the community at reality check? Yeah. 
So our, our prime focus for the last year at Reality Check has been our social VR game show called Kiss or Kill. Uh, so Kiss or Kill is two to eight players. Oh, that was the board. Trivia Royale. Um, it's like Jeopardy with weapons. Mm. And so when you sort of look at the, the micro on that, it is you've got people together in a room having a shared experience um, around something that is fairly simple, meaning uh, it passes the mom test. And the mom test is just, can my mom go into this and understand it? Okay. And in fact, she has. She's played a bunch of times, um, and it requires very little instruction, right? You put on the headset, and then it functions as if you're on a game show. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no complex controllers. You know, again, it's just very intuitive. Um, and so I think that's really important when you're building community in VR spaces. Um, so uh, I, you can kind of break our community into two discrete pieces. Mm-hmm. There's the community that happens as you play the game. So you go in two to eight people, maybe you know each other, maybe you don't. And through the act of playing together, uh, a community forms. Yeah. So there's that piece. And then there's the separate piece, let's say the, the non-VR piece, where we're building community of players when they're not in VR. So in gaming, the big focus is Discord. Um, so Discord, if you've never used it, is a, you know, it's a chat, voice, video messaging platform around gaming. Mm-hmm. So we have a private Discord server with uh, like 110 people on it right now um, who are there to just, you know, they talk about the game, they give feedback, they match make, and that's been absolutely vital because Kiss or Kill isn't available yet to the public. Mm-hmm. So we have to specifically invite you and give you a key to be able to get the game. So we've been by design keeping the community very contained. Um, so to have a few hundred active players, you know, a hundred plus member Discord community is, is really, really compelling uh, at such an early stage of the game. Um, so those are, I said, the two discrete ways that we're building community at Reality Check. Okay. And forgive me for my ignorance. Yeah. Is this a game, Kiss or Kill, that can be played? Are you doing any hosting over the internet or is it in you know, a fixed location right now for some sort of beta testing? Right, great question. So let's, let's kind of break down. And man, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna have to get into some of the nitty gritty of the VR market. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm taking the interview off the rails, but that's okay, this is super interesting. Yeah, we're gonna go off the rails. And the good news is, VR marketing, you're going to have awesome SEO terms around VR marketing from this that no one's talking about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, if you, if you want to zoom out for a second and you want to talk about where should be people focusing around community technology uh, as a marketer, you should be th- if you're a marketer and you're not thinking about VR and AR, you are behind. Uh, and one of the awesome. biggest things that attributed to our success at Quest yeah. was we got in, into Facebook 2011. 2011. Yeah. We're on Facebook, man. And that's, yeah. we'll it on that. Yeah. Um, so long non sequitur, but let me break down what we're doing with Kiss or Kill. Okay. So there's two primary means of experiencing Kiss or Kill. Mm-hmm. There's the at-home experience for people that have an Oculus Rift, an HTC Vive, uh, and a pretty beefy computer. So these are the people, these are the, you know, the hardcore geeks, the super enthusiasts, the early adopters. They've got the fast computers and they've got the VR hardware they're playing in. Um, there's, depending on whose estimates you look at, around 2 million of those people um, around the world. So it's very small. Then there's VR arcades. So that's location-based entertainment. And essentially, you know, the movie theaters are realizing attendance is down. Mm-hmm. Malls are realizing that foot traffic is down. Everyone is desperate from a, from a commerce perspective for that next big thing. And luckily, VR is hitting its stride. 
And if you look at the diffusion of technology, of any new technology, things like VR arcades are, are such a vital early step because you've got people who are not going to spend the $500 for the headset and they're not going to have the $1,500 to $2,500 computer. So they have to go to an arcade. So arcades are critical in these early days of virtual reality. Mm -hmm. um, it's very similar to in the 1940s when TV was coming out. Mm -hmm. No one had a TV in the early 1940s, the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So people would go to bars and watch TV there. Like bars killed it in the 1940s if they had it. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a really meaningful way. It's so like internet thing, cafes too. Exactly. Yeah. So same thing is happening um, mm -hmm. with VR at VR arcades. So Kiss or Kill Trivia Royale, we really designed that for the arcade first. It's two to eight players. It's really focused on groups of people go to the arcade together and they want to play together. There actually aren't a lot of offerings that allow for that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's a, that's a very big focus for us. So, you know, to really distill it, you've got the at-home market. Those are the early adopters. And then you've got the VR arcade market. Um, and that's really appealing to a wider audience, people that have heard about VR, they want to jump in and try it. And there you pay by the hour. So it's around $25 an hour. You go in and, you know, you choose whatever games you want. Um, and then for people like us, it's a, a revenue split between us and the arcade on a permanent basis. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> the part about, I can't, I can't stop thinking about the part about building communities uh, online because if you have people that are interacting in a, in a virtual reality world, building communities, uh, it seems like the implications for that are, are pretty enormous. Are there any in particular you've thought about besides just gaming that uh, you think will be sort of, I guess, game changing for all industries? Yeah. I mean, so you've already got some people thinking about what's the shopping experience like in virtual reality. Mm -hmm. um, you've got some innovative brands that are using augmented reality already. Um, some makeup brands are doing it. Um, Wayfair's doing it. Um, who else is doing it? Um, some sunglass brands are doing it, right? Where you can essentially try on those products at home on your phone. Mm -hmm. um, so that's on the AR side. On the VR side, you know, there's, it's, Right now, we're in the awkward, you know, puberty stage of the technology. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're already seeing some glimmers of very interesting things. And so what I think is most compelling is that your brain will not know the difference between a VR experience and a real life experience. So when you think about brand affinity and brand experiences, um, experiential marketing is really freaking expensive. We did yeah. a lot of it at Quest. Yeah. It's effective because it's high touch, mm -hmm. but it's also super inefficient. So you, through virtual reality, you can scale experiential high-touch marketing, um, not needing tons of humans to do this, but still giving the, the person who experiences it um, the, the feeling of as if they were already there. And, and by, so, by experiential, you mean you know, if you're in a store, all the displays and things for whatever you're... You're beyond that, right? Yeah. It's, it's you know, interacting with that brand in a fun way. Think about how, think about what a brand like 7up does at Coachella. Mm -hmm. where they're spending millions of dollars on having these crazy pop-ups where you go in <laughs> and experience and yeah. you know, all that doing is, is to give you higher brand affinity mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day. That's super inefficient. Um, so we actually did the first ever study of brand recall in virtual reality. So we brought a ton of 60 or so people and they came through and played kiss or kill. And within kiss or kill, we had three different Red Bull ads. So okay. there was a pre-roll ad, on the screen where like the game show occurs, there's a pre-roll ad. There were 3D objects, like cans of Red Bull that you could interact with. 
And then there were essentially banners around the perimeter of the game show set. And we inadvertently created the most successful pre-roll ad of all time. Um, so that ad had 90% recall. Uh, and if you compare that to mobile has at best, like a good mobile recall, it's around 30 or 40%. So we <laughs> doubled the recall. And, and that's because you're in this really- Aren't you trying to shoot things in this game? What's that? Aren't you trying to shoot things in this game? Uh, you're not shooting. So it's all very, it's PG. It's very cartoon. Okay. Um, so you're like throwing <laughs> pies at each other. I was going to say, if you're waiting for someone to shoot at you and then a Red Bull ad comes, like you're definitely going to remember that ad. Like, right. <laughs> well, what was interesting is we also had a biometric partner on that. And so okay. we had people hooked up to EKGs, brainwave oh monitors. God, that's and so you're able to see where their peak experience was. And yeah. when you're designing anything, um, gosh, who talks about this? It's uh, like a heat map for human physiology. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, and when you're designing an experience, it's all about, it's the, it's the peak experience mm. plus the end experience is how you remember it in total. I think that's Daniel Kahneman. He has that water. Yeah, water that's water exactly in your water test. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, man, that's, that's wild. So you, man, there's so many things you could do with that company. That's unbelievable. Um, yeah. <laughs> Seems like you go any direction you want. That's, that's great. Um, well, I could talk all day about that because the implications of community building in VR, are just uh, there's no end to the scope of that. But um, let, me, let me get into some of your background and then some of the stuff maybe people who don't have an interest in being cutting edge VR marketers might be able to take away from this interview. So in a lot of other interviews, I've heard you talk about you, you moved to LA, worked for Michael Eisner, on from there what was your background like growing up? Like, was there any indication that you, you, you knew you were going to be an entrepreneur? You knew you wanted to get into marketing? Like, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into all this stuff? Sure. So I grew up in small town, Maine, um, one stop light and a gas station. Uh, definitely sort of an outlier there. So I, you know, I spent a lot of, I was very enamored by the internet, uh, in, in the, especially in the early days. And, you know, it was one of those, I would get lost online for, days just the the wealth of knowledge that was there it just blew me away mm. um and so and at the same time i was uh, i was really passionate about filmmaking and so i think a great way to explain it is one year i went to summer camp for computer programming and the <laughs> other year i went for filmmaking oh, wow uh, so wow. those are the, you know those are the sort of the things that were bubbling inside of me yeah uh, so in high school i created a web design company um, I got fired from my job at the florist, um, cause I was not a good manual laborer yeah. and I got fired from there. And then a few days later I went back and said, Hey, I, I want to build you a website. Um, and they're like a website. What? We just you fired know? you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we just fired you. B like, what's yeah. a, a website where we sell yeah. flowers. I'm like, you know, trust me, I'll build it for free. Um, give it a shot. And if it works, pay me. Yeah. Um, so I did, it worked, they paid me, and then I kept doing more and more websites, um, which was awesome. And it, it gave me kind of those early, that early experience, because, you know, I was 15, 16, and then I was offshoring, you know, PHP coders. Um, so learning, oh, wow. learning how to work with technical people overseas at a, as a, at a really early age was great. And of course, the arbitrage opportunity there of, you know, you're so paying. good. Yeah, you're paying a coder six bucks an hour, and you know, or ten bucks an hour, or whatever it was. Um, when was this? What was like nineteen, <sighs> early two, late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, that's great arbitrage for website building. Yeah, it must have been ninety nine, and you know, there's that period of time where everyone was a web developer, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Maine was the last to sort of, and I was one of the, <laughs> the <laughs> so, last state to fall to, to web development yeah, freelancing. Yeah. Yeah. So that worked out great. Uh, went to Syracuse University to the Newhouse School there for TV, radio, film. Okay. Um, great experience there and kind of knew, I knew since I was 15, maybe even younger, that I was going to move to Los Angeles. That was just always sort of, uh, you know, just what I knew to be true. Yep. Um, so, you know, right after graduation, packed up my little car, drove across country um, without a job. I didn't even have a place to live. Um, but I just, you know, just it's just I knew. Um, yeah. So headed out to Los Angeles, had a few weird jobs, um, worked for a producer, was, just, you know, essentially getting them coffee. <laughs> what did I find? I may have found the job with Michael on, on, uh, on Craigslist. Oh, wow. That might actually be true. Um, but whatever the case, you know, what was cool about that job was I sort of got my way in because they essentially, they needed someone that could export different file formats in Final Cut Pro Mm -hmm. and upload them via FTP. Mm -hmm. Um, because listen, you've got tens of thousands of people every year graduating, moving out to Los Angeles to get into the film industry. And that's a slog. I mean, that's, it's just, you're doing, you're getting coffee for a couple of years. You're making photocopies for a couple of years. It's hard to kind of get in anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had this really unique skill set because I understood filmmaking. I went to film school, but everyone out here has had that. Mm-hmm. I also ran a web design company. So I knew how to export different codecs and I knew how to FTP. I knew how to do HTML and I had people that I could use to do more advanced coding. Um, so those, like, they needed that skill set that I just so happened to have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the same time, you know, as that, as that advance, of course, community building was also really important. Um, so, you know, we spun up dedicated message boards um, because I had experience doing that at my, you know, my main car enthusiast website. Mm-hmm. So it was really, you know, that's when I sort of identified, all right, I really like technology. I really like community building. And I really like storytelling and whoa, cool. I can get a job doing those things. Yeah. Um, so did that for Michael Eisner for, I don't remember, three, four years, um, and was able to sort of leverage my skill set to get to do the stuff I actually wanted to do, which was more on the creative development side, where you know you meet with writers, directors, um, develop out ideas, pitch them internally, and try to get them made. Um, and then eventually, that was just another skill set to stack on top, right? And yeah. then brought all of that to Quest, um, where they weren't really they didn't really exist when I first met the three founders there. Um, the Tom had just moved over full time. Like I think Tom started a quest full time 10 days before I joined. Um, so that's, you know, I thought, I thought they were all founders at the same, they were all working at the same software. Yeah. privately held software company. And, and so the, they were still working there and then doing quest nights and weekends. Tom was the first one to go full time at quest. Oh, oh, now, oh, they were doing quests and nights and weekends. Yeah. Jeez. Those are the most, those are, if you bought a quest bar, yeah. you had a 2010 quest bar. Mm. Those things were, must've been like 10 bucks each. If you consider you had these, you know, highly paid executives rolling home after working all day at their software company. Expensive and manual labor. Yeah. The most expensive manual labor. Um, and the product was much more expensive. I'm guessing the, the ingredients. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. You're having to buy small batches of that. So anyway, when I, you know, when I met those guys, when I went in for my first interview there, mm-hmm. um, I came, I had made a 20 page keynote um, deck explaining, here's how we get your first million fans. Here's exactly what we need to do. 
Um, and they essentially said, listen, we want to use social to build this company. We see this as a huge opportunity. We're not quite sure what that means. So, hey, go have at it. Um, and I said, yeah, I know exactly how to do this. And cool, let me go have at it. By the way, we're going to have to build a film studio to actually get this done. Uh, they thought I was kidding. I wasn't. And, you know, cut to three years later and we had a 10,000 square foot soundstage and 20 full-time people just creating content. Yes. Yeah. And I have a bunch of specific questions about some of that, that I, I pulled based on your previous interviews. I want to get to that. I have one more question before I get into the tactical marketing stuff. Um, you said that, you know, by the time you're going there and actually before that, when you're interviewing with Michael Eisner, you had developed this skill stack, you know, this talent stack with, you know, uh, building communities. You knew a lot about web development. So I see a really big one is you're building communities. And then also in your back pocket, you knew how to hire and manage people to do small tasks. You might not technically know how to do. Right. In addition to that, you had an interest in computers and film, which in 2018, everyone would be like, obviously that's great. Creating things, right. uh, making things with software. Did you have any sort of foresight prescience? How did you know to develop those skills? Were you 16 and like, well, I'm going to develop this skill stack. So in my twenties, I can get this job at Quest. Like, how did you know, what would you suggest people do yeah. have that kind of foresight? Yeah. I mean, and I know for some people, they struggle with that, which is, I always find too bad. I'm just naturally curious. I, I mean, I annoy the hell out of people because I'm always asking questions. Yeah. Um, as a kid, I was terrible about that. Uh, which I, you know, I thought is a good thing. I still think it was a good thing. So I was just, um, you know, what, like you'd watch a movie and you'd be like, I remember when I was really young, I was like, how are there words in the credits? Like, how's their text there? How's that happening? How are they doing that? Um, and then cut to the internet where all of a sudden you can learn all these things. Mm. Um, so it was never a conscious effort of, I need to build this skill stack. It was just following what I was interested in. Um, and then that was really enabled, not just the ability to look things up on the internet, but it was to communicate with people on the internet. Um, yeah. And that's all, you know, that's where the community building thing started was whatever I was interested in, I would find a community, a message board built around it. Um, so, you know, screenwriting, filmmaking, they all had these little niche communities where, you know, you make a crappy short film and upload it and they'd critique you. So this is the world's best film school for free. Uh, and it was super engaging and there was pretty decent people there. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a conscious effort for a job. It was just, I'm interested in this stuff and I can't help myself. So it's more or less indulging your own curiosity. 100%. (laughs) Whenever like that is exactly how I try to design my life. Right. I just, I need to be indulging myself and luckily it's, it's pointed in a good direction. Um, so yeah, when, when done correctly and amplified, it's a, it's a pretty powerful weapon. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I will get back to the marketing. (laughs) So I did read, I heard in your interview, you eventually scaled up your content production process to the point where in order to get a 15 second recipe on Instagram, you would have a day of recipe development an entire day devoted to shooting, an entire day devoted to post-production. A lot of marketers now, eight, nine, uh, seven, six years later, know how important production is. People have, you know, I've heard Gary Vaynerchuk pays $50,000 to have his crew follow him around and edit his content per month because everyone understands creating that growth engine with content is so important. 
how do you look at that? How did you know it was that important that long ago? So back then, what's the truth? The truth is I was indulging myself. <laughs> <laughs> Again, okay, yeah. Um, that really is the truth of, of, all right, there's a lot of crappy content out there. Um, that was sort of at the peak of SEO farms. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's like, okay, let's do the exact opposite of that. So this was this was even before Tasty, right? Before Tasty came up with that like really distinct style. Um, it was just, let's make awesome stuff that people are going to want to share and actually like get something out of. Um, so we weren't focused on, you know, it's not like we were looking for the highest ranking healthy cooking term and then creating content around it. We were doing the opposite. We were just, Hey, let's make awesome content and, you know, spread it out as far as we can go. Now I would say that that all jumped the shark. Um, that is, that is now to me old school marketing. Um, it's super overdone. Um, I, I had to, I've unfollowed just almost every brand on Instagram, um, that I was following mostly for research purposes, but it's just, everyone's doing the same thing now. Um, what do you mean by that? What exactly do you, when you jump on Instagram or Facebook is like same thing? Um, the, that style video that we all know, um, like every single brand is doing it because there's 50,000 agencies that will cookie cut that content for you. Um, and so every brand realized, Ooh, we need an influencer strategy, a social strategy and a content strategy. Um, and then everyone's just doing the same thing. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same thing that you see with influencer partnerships now. Um, it's listen, you have to professionalize each new thing as it occurs. So I get that. Um, and I'm super biased because because of my personality, I like to be ahead of all of that. Okay. So by the time it's sort of systematized and professionalized, I, I consider it's, it's old, right? Everyone's doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you stand out when you're using the same agency that every other brand is using, creating the same, because they have to cookie cut it. Um, so then you just end up with stuff that looks the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I won't yet prescribe behavior on what to do. Uh, maybe we get into that, but you know, it's when everyone is doing the same thing. You got to take a step back and think, all right, what are we actually trying to accomplish here and how do we accomplish it? So your goal should not be a content strategy. That's not the goal, right? That that's a tactic towards something larger. Uh, and I think people sort of get lost. You know, you sort of throw your hands up in the air of like, Oh my God, my competitor is doing this thing. So we've got to do it too without sort of understanding how it ties into everything. Um, and that's how you end up with the saturation of, you know, it's sea level crap that no one really cares about. Um, and then the worst thing is you then have to feed the beast, right? You start doing it, you have to keep doing it because you've been doing it. And that's a dangerous place to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. And it's interesting how you say professionalize because, you know, as the cost for a certain quality of content drops, and that becomes the standard, it sounds almost like you're saying the level of creativity and quality is, is relative where, uh, you know, especially with the creativity doing something different, you know, as soon as everyone's doing it, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, it's supposed to be good quality. It just becomes filtered out. It sounds like, um, so how does, <laughs> you know, that was a unique idea when you did it and you, you know, now you're saying a lot of food companies have, have the same type of production. What, how does that, by the way, it's not just food. It's all, it's all it's CPG in particular, but yeah. anyone doing yeah. direct consumer internet marketing, they're all doing the same crap. 
So in, in order to answer a more broad question, I'm just going to ask you specifically. So in order to ask, you know, how, how would you start marketing nowadays? I'm just going to ask you if you were starting a CPG company, uh, it's 2018 right now, April, 2018, what, what would be the first couple just big things? Obviously you can't get into everything, but big things you would think about and do. Let's see. Um, I think one thing that we started spinning up at Quest was a good idea was Quest Labs. Um, that's where we put early production stuff up for sale and build the community around the product. So we had a dedicated message board um, just for those people. Um, and they were able to you know, provide feedback and be hyper engaged at an early level with the product. Um, that's super valuable. Um, it's, I mean, the funny thing is if you look at a lot of successful CPGs, a lot of them started at farmer's markets. I think that's great. I think I'd actually do that. Um, There's nothing more powerful than watching someone consume whatever your product is, hearing their feedback. It's even better when they don't know who you are. So, because people will sugarcoat it, right? They'll tell you what they think you want to hear. Oh my God, it's amazing. But if you can hear them talking to their friend about it or you kind of somehow engage them where they don't know that you're the creator of it. Yeah. uh, which, by the way, we do this at Reality Check all the time at events. Um, it, it is the best thing in the world. Um, so, I mean, a lot of the cliched advice is good advice. You've got to start with a good product. Um, you're just wasting oxygen if your product is crappy. And, you know, I know a lot of people do that and hope. They, people hope to market their way out of a bad product. It's <laughs> never going to work. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I will give the counterintuitive advice Start at a farmer's market. Huh. Interesting. It's not what you're looking for at all. That's why I'm giving it to you. No, no, that's great. You gave me one thing. The thing about getting people, I can just picture getting reactions from people that don't hear their creator, especially on bad versions. And uh, that would definitely lend a lot of credibility to any campaign you do. Yeah. Uh, start at a farmer's market though. I don't want to dilute your message. That's awesome. Uh, I do have a question though related to the good product remark. Sure. So you said some interesting stuff about your marketing at Quest. Uh, I remember in an interview, you talked about, you know, milestones for the sales team. A big thing for the sales team was uh, let the product be ubiquitous, get it into all the stores. Uh, but then another big thing that was interesting is you said you're, you're, you're asked what your number one KPI was. And you said that it was, uh, it was the customer's response or how the customer felt. And I remember you saying, I'm trying to think, my main oh fan sentiment so it was your number one kpi was that entirely were you able to do that entirely because of the superiority of the product you were using is that just a luxury you had working at quest or is that something you think more companies should consider even if they don't feel like you know they're on this higher plane of product quality yeah it's a great question um so i can picture a manager being like not good enough you can't use that as a kpi that's bs yeah well so you know, you, you manage what you can measure, um, and you can now measure sentiment, right? Yeah. Um, very simply through Facebook review scores or Yelp scores or, you know, wherever you are. Um, so you can actually get true data around how people feel. Um, I would say that the days of not caring about that are over. Yeah. Uh, you know, firmly entrenched brands, maybe not as important, but even they are sort of realizing, Oh, this, this really matters. Um, this being, let's call it sentiment. Um, you kind of define that in a few different ways, but it, the days of sort of like 
throwing sugar into a can and then blasting the ads, those are over. Um, And each generation has a medium and massive companies are built on that medium, right? So Coca-Cola was huge because of mostly TV. Um, And that was awesome. They've had an awesome reign. Um, They're obviously not going anywhere tomorrow, but you know, Coca-Cola will collapse just like Kodak collapsed. Um, So you now have this new wave of brands built on social and you've sort of got a, a sliding scale of, of um, company value. And the ones with the higher values, they're, they're going to win as long as they survive long term. Now, the early days of any brand are, are very fragile. Um, and you could have all the love in the world towards your customers and create what you think is the best product in the world and you could still not survive. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that's a short-term survival technique. It's probably not can still do scammy gray hat, black hat stuff and make a few dollars. Um, but if you want to survive, uh, you want to be a perennial brand, it, there is no option anymore. And that's, I mean, that's just, that's just true. That's sort of, those are table stakes. So if you're not measuring that, then you're not playing the game that you're supposed to be playing. Yeah. No table stakes. That's a good way to put it. Uh, and just, to get granular on the, the one point, because that wasn't like you w- above and beyond in terms of information. Uh, for KPIs, if you were at a company, you would expect someone to be picking like these are going to be the ones that we think best we can track to represent fan sentiment. Oh, certain yeah. metrics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we we track to our um, our Facebook review score. Uh, uh, okay. And you know, I won't get into all of it, but essentially I mean, we had a very, like very concrete mission of increasing that score. Um, so yes. And then, you know, we would have a, a monthly meeting where everyone on the marketing team would plow into a conference room and everyone had, you know, they, they had their individual, each team had their own KPIs. And then we sort of had overall marketing KPIs. Um, and one of which is that, you know, increasing what that score is. Um, and everyone's sort of tracking into that. So, you know, you can break that down each, each division, right? Of digital, social content creation, all funneling up to, to broader goals. Um, and so, yeah, that's essential. Awesome. Awesome. Um, this is kind of in line with the fan sentiment, but you said if you make a product, you mentioned one customer you guys actually created an award for because uh, I think unfortunately you said she passed away, but you created an award for this customer. And when you, when you talked about creating this award, you said, if you make a product perfect for one customer, you make it perfect for everyone. Um, in essence, uh, what did you mean by that? Could you expand on that a little bit? So, I mean, obviously I don't remember the, the exact quote, but I, you know, the, the sentiment, um, and it definitely holds true is you can sort of, you've got to think about individuals, right? It's very hard to have any sort of emotion towards a broad group, mm-hmm. but you can be very focused and very, um, you know, emotionally aligned with an individual, right? It gives you a rally cry. Um, so for us, it, you know, you're talking about Joy Ramita. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for, you know, it's sort of, she was the stand-in for the, the Facebook review score KPI, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where, what would Joy want? What should we do for Joy? Um, we knew she was there holding us to a very high standard, which is awesome. Um, and you know, when done correctly, it can, especially when you're a smaller team and that's, you know, when jo- joy was, you know, super fan number one. So when you're a really small team, it's really easy to be like, Hey, joy just emailed us and she weighed every single bar and they were all too heavy. 
So fine. Like we got to go buy the expensive piece of equipment, um, knowing like yeah. you've got joy here talking and then you've got 10,000 other people who aren't talking, thinking the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got at reality check. We actually have the same thing. So we've got the super fan, Tony C. Um, who's like played in all the tournaments, super early adopter. And so we talk about Tony C no joke. Like we probably talk about him more than his own family. <laughs> um, right. Cause it's like, yeah. he stand in for well, what would Tony say about that? Mm. Um, and you know, again, knowing that you can extrapolate that individual into, to, into the broader group. So yeah. It, and listen, like identifying your super fans and knowing who they are and then doing special things for them. That again is table stakes. You've got to be doing that. Um, it's good for everyone, including the brand. So yeah, it's a, it's a very useful. Technique. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> I just have two more questions too. This is really, really awesome information. Um, so you've mentioned table stakes a couple of times now and you know, from a marketer's perspective, I'd feel like the table stakes are getting pretty high. Um, <laughs> so if they can meet that, what then are the avenues now you see again, it's April, 2018 where people can innovate and gain some of that real outstanding traction for their efforts, similar to, you know, Facebook in 2011 or Facebook ads in, you know, 2015, 2014, yeah. where, where can people do that now? Like, where are you looking in the next five years, 10 years? I know you're still involved in a lot of these channels. You're creating one right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, so I'll say that it's not Snapchat. It's not Instagram stories. Um, it's not SEO, but you've got to be doing all those things. Um, table stakes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so actually I want to address cause it, it's a very, it's a thing I think about a lot. You're, you were saying how, you know, the table stakes like that table's getting bigger, bigger, big. more, <laughs> a lot of table stakes. Yeah. There's this really interesting thing that happens, right? Like anywhere in the world, when you get like, think about Steve jobs in his garage, right? You can't really do that anymore. If you wanted to start a new computer company today, mm -hmm. doing that without 10, 50, a hundred million dollars in venture capital would be really hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there's really small windows of opportunity each generation to, to get into something um, when you're small. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, that was the, the exact opportunity and the exact reason why I, I left quest to start reality check was there's this really small window of opportunity in virtual reality where we can be a team of three full-time people and actually make it, uh, that, that opportunity is short because very soon you you're up against people with a hundred million dollars in the bank and it's just good luck. Um, so that's what, you know, when you think about sort of opportunity timing, um, you know, we are exiting the, what is hopefully the last winter of virtual reality. Um, meaning, you know, everyone was all excited in 2016 about VR and then realized, Oh, it's going to take 10 years. And then a lot of people left, but the few companies like reality check who survive through that, you end up on the other side. Um, so, you know, you brought that up. I wanted to address that because I think about that a lot. Um, so if I was starting a new CPG, let's not even do CPG. Um, you know, if you're just thinking about where's the opportunity right now today, where, where can you be a small team, um, and kind of be in early enough to make a difference? Um, what would I be doing? Um, two years ago, I would have said, make sure you're focusing on Reddit. Um, mm -hmm. Reddit's sinking right now. I don't know mm -hmm. how much longer it will be around. Mm -hmm. Um, 
finding the next. So actually, okay, here's an answer. Um, it's not, it's not a new answer, but finding those small communities, um, that's still a great strategy. Um, go find your individual super fans. Um, I mean, it's actually, it's going back to my farmer's market example. Yeah. Uh, now just extrapolate that um, online, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That strategy is still a good strategy. That's a very old strategy. That's the thousand true fan strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still super valid. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it's, you know, it's finding new places to do it. Um, uh, I'm trying to not give the answer of VR, AR, even though that's sort of where I want to keep going. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little early. For if you're a new brand, there's not a ton you can do in VR. Um, you know, you, you, you'll be able to get really cheap. Like you could reach out to us if you wanted to put an ad into Kiss or Kill. You're going to get awesome rates. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, that's really more brand marketing um, than like direct consumer, direct conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that's the biggest one on the horizon. God, I really want to think more about that. Hmm. Oh, well, I mean, so there's a few others. Are these controversial? Maybe they are. Um, so artificial intelligence, um, that, that is sweeping so fast and people don't understand what's happening. Um, so I would, you know, listen, you, the hard part of machine learning is sort of been systematized. Um, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get the PhD level machine learning guy, uh, to work for you, but most of those algorithms are already figured out, um, and you can get a mid-level person to work for you. So here, here's the controversial one that you could do, mm-hmm. um, that I think would be very effective is you scrape comments all over the internet, particularly Reddit, you create a botnet of accounts that are pushing your message. Um, so you, if you haven't read the NSA, um, um, who is the NSA and the, um, I think it's the Israeli military their field manual on shaping discourse online. Just go read that and do what they're doing. Boom. Uh, if people didn't listen to the interview that long, they just missed out. The yeah. Israeli, Israeli slash NSA, you're not sure which one, field guide yeah, so to Snowden influence online? Uh, Snowden leaked it in 2014. Mm. The JDF. Is the JDF um, influencing social communities? That's fantastic. That, I mean, again... <laughs> That's on the, that's on the darker, yeah. you know, white hat, black hat. That's, yeah. that's up here. Yeah. Um, but now think about how to do that in a, in a good way. Uh, and I do think that there are ways to do that. I think there's ways that you can be using. Cause, I mean, here's a product that I'm sure someone is building. And if they're not like, here's a free one, um, managing social communities and, you know, brands persona online through artificial intelligence, community managers, that job's going away. Yeah. Um, social media and marketing managers, that job's going away. Mm-hmm. Um, those are such silly jobs. Um, and that can all be automated. Um, and so if you want to make a quick billion dollars, um, you can make that software and that will be very successful. Um, so you should be thinking about how to use artificial intelligence in your company. Um, and you know, I'm sort of tongue in cheek about the JDF thing, but if you're a marketer and you haven't read that, like, Come on, you got to read that. Oh, I think understanding the implications is, is the more yeah, important man, thing than you know, maybe using the exact techniques they talk about. 100%. Because remember, like the thing that the Russians are being accused of, we invented in the United States. Like mm-hmm. we're the experts at that. Yeah. Um, so you should be looking into artificial intelligence and machine learning, even if it's just to manage your communities. Um, you should be looking. Chatbots, I'm, I'm using AI with chatbots is effective um, from an efficiency standpoint. 
Um, voice skills, I think, are overhyped. Um, you know, we've done some Alexa work. Um, it's all just decision trees. It's not that, not that complicated. Anyone could make an Alexa skill. They're very easy to make. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there was a window last year. If you made an Alexa skill, like, you'd get some, some press for it. Um, that, that's sort of gone, but you could have a nice little company making voice skills because brands think they need them now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they actually do, but there's a lot of community there. Yeah. So, stuff like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Answer. <laughs> I, no, I could, I could go on all day with you about the implications of the, uh, the using, you know, VR with, with bots, with AI and bots online to build communities, but to, to keep it still useful, you mentioned AI community managers and social media managers going away. What jobs do you think people should actually focus on if they're just trying to get a job in marketing and these are like entry level people, what are some things they can start getting into now to position themselves to have you know, a better job in the future? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of people say this and I think it's good advice. Um, and we were talking about this earlier with my path so far is you've got, it's gotta be two things, right? Don't be just good at social media, be good at social media and biology or, you know, um, right. It's, it's combinations of passions that they always like, they always coalesce into a very positive uh, way. Um, so yeah, if I was just starting out, it would be find those intersection points. Um, don't be good at just social. Um, cause hey, I mean, that's like, just look at history that social is going to, it's already normalized. Right. So five, 10 years ago, you could make a nice little business out of being a social media marketing agency, you know, a team of one running someone's Facebook page. Um, but that's like, that always has like, that always ends. Um, so you've got to have complementary skill sets or actually not even complementary, right? Like having very weird, two separate, very weird skill sets is, is always going to put you into a great position. Always, always, always. Um, and eventually maybe they become not so weird. Um, so yeah, I, I would be, I'd be just driving forward on whatever things you're curious about and find ways to combine them at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, entry level, it's always tough. Uh, <laughs> no one likes being at the entry level. So, you know, oh. that was always a, a driving force for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Let, let, let that passion for not being at the entry, entry level drive your uh, curiosity to learn things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, man, this interview. Oh, so good. That was awesome info, especially the thing about that manual. I'm definitely gonna look that up. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, because we took such long tangents and covered good tangents. Covered most of the things. Um, I would, you know, it's it's find wide variety of sources of stuff to be reading about every day. Um, right. That that's another good way to sort of get these extra skill stacks. Um, uh, I would. Ooh, like I'd subscribe, like find things that you're interested in and then find the expensive thing to subscribe to. Like every niche has an expensive newsletter. Subscribe mm-hmm. to that. On the ones you're passionate about, like Ben Thompson, Stratechery, um, is like the best $10 a month I spend. Um, and right, it's, it's finding these various sources of knowledge. Uh, maybe they're tangential. Farm Street, that's another good use of money. Um, so it's, it's just be constantly exposed to these things and then read the difficult books. Yeah, that's such a good one. Oh my God. 
God, you give me flashbacks of hearing about some of the textbooks that Elon Musk reads. Right. Yeah. Reading books. Well, Nick, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm going to cut this. We can chat after, but again, thank you for the time. It was really awesome talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you.